Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. I'd like to welcome today Vegan Gorian, who spoke at our regional conference a few weeks ago in Sterling, Virginia. Vegan, as many of you know, is an author and was a longtime professor at University of Virginia, teaching literature, ethics, and theology. Uh, thank you for joining us, Vegan. Yeah, glad to be here. So Vegan was part of our speaking lineup at the conference, um, uh, gave one of our plenaries and some of the breakouts uh, where we talked about the face of God. And I want to talk to him a little bit more about his his talk, The Grammar of Our Lives and the fairy tale stories that bring it to life. First off, Vegan, why, why fo- fairy tales? Why focus on fairy tales when it comes to the grammar of our lives? Because I regard, uh, Brandon, I regard fairy tales as one of the mo- most important uh sources of our culture, uh, along with scriptures and the classical world, uh, so forth. Um, Fairy tales are especially important for children, I think, because they're about as concrete uh, as as it gets in in terms of storytelling. And children grab onto the concrete and grab onto the narrative. Fairy tales narratives are straightforward not always logical in the realistic sense but certainly straightforward and children enjoy them um i think that uh, in classical education um we we instinctively know this so in the early years uh the so-called grammar years uh children are reading stories they're reading out of the classics uh, the myths, the Greek and Roman myths, but they're also uh, reading um, sections of the Bible, uh, and they're reading fairy tales. And therefore, when I speak of grammar, I don't mean simply uh, the parts of speech or diagramming sentences. Uh, I, I mean the fundamental uh, sources of our culture that that children need to know in order to navigate through life. Could you give me some examples of what you mean uh, when you talk about the fundamentals of culture and examples of that grammar, uh, either for us as Americans or just in Western society, the kind of things that they need? I'll stick with the fairy tales, I guess. Uh, Obviously, uh, there are values and norms and virtues that are that uh, are brought out through uh, various kinds of literature, whether it's the scriptures or whether it's uh, ancient myths, uh, Homer or Virgil and so forth, and especially in fairy tales, where there are vivid depictions of the conflict between good and evil, where uh, characters uh, stand out uh, and children can relate to them, or uh, on the opposite, uh, understand that these, these characters are not characters that one would want to emulate in life. Um... A sense of mystery in the fairy tales uh, prepares us for a sense of uh, sense of grace in the world. It seems to me, um, and that that too belongs to fairy tales. Uh, even the magic, I think, is an analog of grace in fairy tales, or the inversion of grace when you come across magic which is uh, wicked or evil in intention and in effect. I think a lot of times um, we tend to think of grammar as something that we've constructed uh, to make 
to create order um, out of chaos. But you talked a little bit about how we don't invent grammar uh, during your talk, but we discover it. Could you talk tell us talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, that that comes out of my conviction that um, the grammar that we and I used actually used the article the grammar uh, deliberately in that talk. Um, the grammar is the is the is 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 related to the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God. So it's a theological precept that I wanted to bring home in that. So that the word, the creator word, in fact, dwells within the world and within us. And uh, we are created in the image of God, that is in the image of the creator word, who is the very image of the Father. And so... Um, our world, we, we are a microcosm of the world. We are give, given the special ability to interpret the world and to find the order in it, which God has brought forth. And that order includes the grammar and the grammar we find in ourselves. We don't invent it, just as we don't invent math. Um, uh, so uh, we don't leave children with the responsibility or the freedom to invent their own math, we teach the math because we have a con conviction that the math is something that is permanent and enduring. And the same, I would argue, holds true for the grammar. We don't invent grammar, and we better be careful about trying to reinvent it on our own terms. You took us back to... Uh... Nietzsche and, and, you know, the claim that God is dead, and then we tend to drop, we tend to read that statement and then leave it alone and just think of it in isolation. But he was talking about it um, in the same idea where we, that we invented it. Um, but then you, you, you brought us the uh, problem that we haven't been able to rid ourselves of the grammar. And so even for Nietzsche, um, we haven't been able to completely kill God off. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how that grammar is tied to that that well and nietzsche's insight and nietzsche had great insights um uh he was a nihilist of, of course but he had great insights almost prophetic insights um twisted uh because of his own twisted mind oftentimes agonized mind but nonetheless his view as he said at one time uh in one of his works um we, we would be rid of God if we could only be rid of the grammar, of grammar, uh, which, which is to say that Nietzsche didn't, when Nietzsche spoke of the death of God, he didn't mean literally the, de the death of, uh, of a being, a superior being, but rather the death of, of the concept of God as, as something that rules over ourselves, that we've invented uh, something uh, which has been fabricated by our own imaginations. And if we could be rid of the grammar, uh, we could be uh, rid of the God who controls us uh, in our own minds, even though that God does not exist as a supernatural being. And what my point was in the paper was, is that what we are seeing presently with so-called pronouning and all the rest of it is an attempt by forces in our culture to actually be rid of the grammar and in that way uh, be rid of God. 
and I, I think that most of them, most of these advocates of uh, of, of revising our grammar, are, are fundamentally anti-theistic and in and in particular anti-Christian. So you see a lot of that as as kind of the the final and or the final stroke of this attempt that's been happening since early enlightenment yeah to modern, this modern, modern atheism yeah it's an out it's it's an outgrowth of it not that these people are particularly educated in nietzsche and any of the other uh, minds great minds of nihilism that in the last several centuries but they've it's 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 in the culture they picked it up they like the flavor of it Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and uh, they have enough uh, guile uh, and initiative to uh, go about deconstructing creation. Yeah, we talk a lot about how one of the hardest parts for those of us in classical education is the fact that we swim in it. We just don't even know it. We've been swimming in those waters our whole lives in the culture um, to try and to see the water for what it is. Um, you, you mentioned something in particular where you talked about it being... Um, a religious war, not a culture war. And I think that might be a helpful distinction for a lot of us who, have, especially those of us like myself, who've kind of grown up in the era of the culture war um, politically to kind of make that distinction. Well, religion precedes culture. Uh, culture grows out of religion. That's not my insight. It's the insight of many uh, who precede us. Um, Christopher Dawson, uh, these are more modern figures, T.S. Eliot, uh, but also uh, uh, anthropologists, cultural anthropologists uh, would, will often in, often support that, that view. So um, um, we have had a culture war, but now it's getting more specific and more fundamental because if you, if you deconstruct the grammar, and, and eliminate it, and we, they've done it in various ways, simply by not presenting grammar as grammar in, in grammar schools, what we used to call grammar schools, um, and, and now forcibly um, imposing a, a, doctrine of, uh, a doctrine which uh, does not permit us to use the uh, personal pronouns and relative pronouns in the way uh, that uh, our grammar requires us to do if we're going to gain insight into the created order. Um, it's religious in the sense that our fundamental stories of cre- creation that exist in the Bible uh, are being undermined, beginning with Adam and Eve themselves, or the many Adam and Eves that the church marries. Uh, are we not to call them men and women? Are we not to call them he or she? Are we not to call them Adam and Eve? Um, if we're not, then um, we've. Uh, this is a process of what I call. I call these people decreationists, and it's a fundamentally religious uh, war. Therefore, because it's an attack on God, the God that we uh, worship as Christians, certainly uh, the logos uh, that John speaks of in in the first chapter of his gospel. Um, that go, that, that's all being rejected uh, by virtue of the kinds of strategies these people are using to, uh, to create a, a form of education for our children, which uh, will disable them from even beginning to believe in the God that we worship. And you talked to us a little bit about how this is they're they're decreating through grammar. 
Um, but that even even within that, they still are have to reference the norm currently. So they they'll have to give up even some of their own nomenclature. Can you walk us through that a little bit more? Well, I can think of nihilism. Nihilism is fundamentally <clears throat> uh, suicidal. Dostoevsky pointed that out by the characters who created, who are nihilists, who either tried to destroy the social order completely or, or uh, in the end, uh, committed suicide. So um, uh, the, the, the process here uh, is there are norms. And if we believe that those norms are permanent, that they are brought into existence through God's own, what shall I say, wording of creation. Um, uh, then, 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 uh, when you speak of homosexual or transsexual, you, you, you're inevitably referring back to a norm, uh, which uh, uh, includes two sexes, and um, uh. If you if you rid of that norm, then the words that you're using in substitution, homosexual, transsexual, actually have no meaning. They have no basis or uh, or reference point. Um, what that means in the long term, I don't know. I, in my view, it's impossible ultimately to to uh, ignore the grammar uh, without destroying ourselves. Um, I want to turn the the conversation back a little bit to the the broader use of grammar and and um, <clears throat> you you talk a little bit about the pristine wisdom of the imagination in a child not being rationalized away yet. Um, but I think for a lot of our audience who are parents or teachers, uh, there's a balance of trying to bring students and children up to um, to an adult wisdom that they're trying that they're trying to do through their through their education. Um, so how do they how do they kind of make space for that that uh, kind of unencumbered uh, pre rational wisdom that, of the child um, that that is willing and open to the to the fairy tale um, while still helping them to mature in in that wisdom? Well, it all it all has to do with the story. Um, with children, I I think. Uh, our our temptation is to uh, take these stories and use them as lesson tools and lead a child to abstract thought. And that's a mistake. Uh, I think that uh, certainly younger children, let's say 12 and under, but that's an arbitrary number, um, uh, savor the story itself, the narrative. They're attracted to narrative. They have a narrative sense that we often underestimate and we underestimate the power of the narrative to communicate the order of creation um at least the best of the best stories that we have the to uh to comprehend our own nature and so forth and so on to know the difference between uh, uh, good and evil to in, in, envision a perfection of ourselves perhaps even um or the or, or the opposite to to uh, recognize the possibility of uh wickedness and um and it, what we would call demonic existence um these all come through the, the, these all come through the fairy tales 
So the first thing I would say is you read the fairy tales uh, or have them read the fairy tales and don't try to dogmatize. Um, don't try to overanalyze. And most of all, do not reduce the stories to abstract concepts that children will come to eventually anyhow. No need to force it upon them. In fact, it's, in my view, uh, counterproductive to do so. Let them talk about the story. We probably won't be satisfied with adults as the way uh, uh, how they talk about the stories because they don't they don't grow they don't go immediately to abstraction and we're expecting that we we tend to read we've been we've been actually educated to go to abstraction um, and that that that's 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 not that's that's counterproductive too. It's, it's not a good way to educate, but that's the way we do educate. Um, and we it's secondhand to us. We, we have a hard time conceiving of other ways to do so. I used to teach. Uh, I taught T.S. Eliot an awful lot. One course on Dostoevsky and Eliot, which was a lot of fun. But one of the things about Eliot is, is that immediately the, the reader will say, well, he's too abstract, but he's not abstract at all. It's your mind that is abstract. He uses concrete images. He's, uh, in point of fact, he's the least abstract of many poets. Um, he's he's asking you to uh, to uh, to grasp these images uh, that he presents to you, and to allow those images to move you uh emotively and intellectually finally but through the images not through abstraction so it's a mis it's a misinterpretation or misnomer to say that t.s Eliot um engages in abstraction it's our minds hmm. which go immediately to abstraction which lead us to the, the notion that Eliot is abstract he's not hmm. So we should be more focused on the actual concrete images he's giving us. Uh, and yes, understanding let them. them seep in. Yeah. Well, read okay, out then, loud, basically. Elliot's best read out loud. Uh, I want to take a, a small detour here because I think for a lot of our, again, a lot of our listeners, um, the idea of fairy tales as a child and then getting to Elliot as their kids are older. Uh, why Why the pairing between Elliot and Dostoevsky for that class? What What was your purpose with that? Well, the, the title the title of this course sort of gave it away, um, which which was uh, essentially a wanderings through the wasteland or notes from the wasteland. Dostoevsky uh, uh, wrote a, a a small novel called Notes from the Underground, and I was playing on that title, but I was also playing on the title of the Wasteland from Eliot, Eliot's best known poem. So the, I was having them read these writers as preeminent critics of, of modernity and culture and defenders of per, the permanent things and um, prophets of a kind of where uh, modernity might lead us or that for that matter, post-modernity admonitions. Uh, talking about the the classic fairy tales, uh, what are some of your favorite 
sources to go to for those. I, I know that there's been lots of iterations of many of them, and then you have the Disneyfication of several of them. Um, so what are some of your favorite sources to get to the to the older fairy tales? And then maybe even some of the ones you find that are essential that that, uh, that we give to the children. The fairy tales have been boulderized by and large, uh, uh, the more traditional fairy tales from Perot and uh, and uh, Anderson and the Grimm's. It's hard to find a uh, picture book versions, especially where they haven't been reduced and even in some way or another rewritten, rewritten um, with the prejudice of the the uh, the person who's rewriting or retelling this fairy tales. Uh, um, so so you have to really go to volumes uh, which are in, in some way not very helpful. Uh, because they don't have pictures where 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 there's a responsibility to present the, or translate the entire tale, whether it's whether it's in, from the French or the German um, or the Danish, for that matter. And uh, I mean, I, I don't have the list of books with me. I can get them for us if you want me to. But um, it's perplexing for parents and teachers, I think, because they don't know how to. How 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 to identify the uh, the authentic tale? Mm -hmm. So I mean, so they need to be looking for something that's a more authentic translation, and not necessarily the ones with the beautiful pictures for the, which uh, is great great for the kids. But exactly, okay. Yeah. And even some of the collections of their fairy tales, uh, which are not comprehensive, um, reduce the fairy tales too. So they leave out episodes. And maybe they don't rewrite or retell tell, which is the freedom of producing a producing these picture book versions of the fairy tales. The, that freedom may not be allowed in mm. collecting a, a a sample of the stories, but sometimes they will eliminate episodes uh, in order to reduce the length and make it more approachable. Maybe I can email you, and we can get some of those into the show notes for folks. They can find those, put those in the notes and links there. And what about as far as essential fairy tales you you would make sure you don't skip or maybe some the ones that you think are kind of foundational for us or for our kids? Well, if you're talking about the more traditional fairy tales, folk tales, et cetera, that and not, we're not talking about Victorian fairy tales or even modern fairy tales, then 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 I'm I've spent the most time with the Grimm's and 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 uh, Anderson. And um, so I'll just speak to that. I mean, the the Grimm's uh, the Grimm's fairy tales are minor classics, small classics. They're they're beautifully worked. Um, they went to various sources for sort of the tales, the, the tales themselves, but they reconstructed them or constructed out of the uh, oral. Uh, tellings that they collected um um what 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 we now call the Grimm's fairy tales so obviously if you're if you're i mean disney had it right in identifying some of the the more important tales there's no question about that so they are cinderella they are snow white they are um the, uh, they, they are hansel and gretel for example um if you want a, a story that's a that may be one of their best, but um, 
the initial reaction, even among adults, will certainly be this is bloody, um, gratuitous violence. Uh, what, what the devil is going on? Then I would say it's the juniper tree. It may be their best story, but it's com- virtually incomprehensible to most modern people because it's deeply, deeply rooted in um, rel- in um, Judeo-Christian uh piety and ritual and it's a it's a profoundly sacramental story but but uh, most most people who read it at first don't get it (laughs) it's just but it's brilliant it's deep deep story um and there there, there are others by the grims that you, you obviously you can go to but but um uh those three i think are really quite significant and i'm probably forgetting one or two um the with 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 anderson i've written probably more on anderson than on the grims and probably spoken more on anderson than the grims although i've spoken more on the grims than i've written um i mean in anderson's case one that is not as well known to the american public is the nightingale it's a really a beautiful story, uh, profound and biblically grounded in many ways. Um, there's no question, but that the Little Mermaid is one of his best. I would I would say that uh, the uh, Little Mermaid and uh, well, I'm going blank now. The Snow Queen, which is o- almost a novella. Um, and I've written on um, the Ugly Duckling, which is far deeper than one can imagine, but almost inevitably has been retold or re- or episodes have been left out. I, I can't come across any popular production of the, the, the Ugly Duckling that even gets near what the story in its whole uh, represents. Interesting, because that's one I think most people would say that they're familiar with, because it's been, like you yeah. said, it's been po- in popular culture. It's been recreated so many times. But yeah, well, uh, my point, in, my point in the second edition coming out of of uh, my my book uh, on on the, on fairy tales and children's literature. Um, uh, well, I argue, I would argue that the Ugly Duckling, although it has the thematically, you can you can see uh, that that he's dealing with bullying, perhaps, or uh, alienation from others by their cruelty and misrepresentation of the person or the uh, of the ugly duckling. The real truth behind the ugly du- duckling is probably best apprehended if you. Uh, consider it as a story about how a love of beauty makes one beautiful which uh, most modern interpreters and uh retellers of that story don't even begin to explore yeah well talking a little bit about some i guess more modern stories that you that i know you're a fan of um i'm not sure you would necessarily slate them in the group of fairy tales or not but um the wind in the willows is one you've spoken about before at our conferences um could you maybe talk a little bit about how that more modern 
story uh, embodies some of these same same ideals, or is that something you're seeing with that by Graham Greene? Oh yeah. Well, I like Graham Greene. I like some of his essays too. He was an essayist of the first order, uh, but um, he's best known for obviously for the Wind in the Willows, um, and perhaps the story of the Reluctant Dragon, which is lots of fun, which is also about friendship. Um, I, I wrote about the wind in the willows and tending the heart of virtue, um, in the original edition, um, under the, under a, a, a title or chapter heading of, uh, friendship, uh, and, uh, of, um, uh, friends and mentors. And, um, in, in the wind in the willows, I, I argue it's, uh, a story that, um, uh, represents a rather pure notion of friendship um, and camaraderie and the care that friends ought to have for one another. And um, and I don't know that it's better told. I mean, it's, it's beautifully written, although, although um, perhaps the speech is elevated, um, it seems elevated because of in my view, the decline of the English language, but <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. And then at the conference, you also let it break out on George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin, which is one that my family loved when we read it together with our kids several years ago. Um, why why the focus on that book in particular? And what do you see MacDonald doing? Uh, it's kind of in this thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I wrote on MacDonald also in Tending the Heart of Virtue. Um, I, I, I uh, identified a theme in it, um, or more rightly spoken, I suppose, the structure of it in 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 that chapter. But I I I I dealt with the story as a whole um, through the uh, through the uh, character of Irene, the principal protagonist, the princess, and so it um, that that analysis. Um, did not go deeply into what I regard, have always regarded as the baptismal structure of the story, that, in fact, uh, MacDonald uh, framed the story almost in, in, in terms of traditional theology of baptism. And um, that was my purpose in presenting the, the lecture, to just demonstrate how... Uh, in fact, if we're going to gain a, a deep knowledge of the story, we have to begin to uh, recognize the baptism, the, the symbolism and the imagery of baptism as fundamental to understanding the character of Irene. Um, and and I pointed out that G.K. Chesterton identified that story as a story that really awakened his sacramental imagination. In later years, he understood that story uh, better because of his conversion to Catholicism, but that that story, that, the, that story prepared him for his conversion in ways that um, were rather profound. And he, while he doesn't talk about the sacrament of baptism per se, I think he saw it there. Um, I wonder whether he ever talked about it with others, but he never wrote about it so far as as I know. Yeah. Well, you 
you, you've mentioned your book, um, Tending the Heart of Virtue, a few times now. Um, you originally wrote that in 1998. Uh, over the last three decades, you've written books on uh, uh, the orthodox ethics, uh, on any number of ethical and theological topics. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Caring for the dying. Yeah. Yes. And, and so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, first, what, what led you to write Tending the Heart of the Virtue originally in, in, in the mid to late 90s? And then why, uh, what, what's coming in this revision? What, what prompted you to, to work on a revision um, now, 20 some odd years later? <clears throat> well, what gave birth to the Tending the Heart of Virtue was uh, initially my reading of many, if really not most of the stories that I study in that, in that volume um, with my children. So it began with reading to my children at, at home, like most parents who take up that practice. I, I did it as conscientiously as I could. But I began to really find an interest in these stories beyond maybe the comprehension of my children that I wanted to explore. And so I thought, well, I'll bring it into the college classroom which was an immense success. It's always been the most popular course I've taught, whether at Loyola College or at uh, at uh, University of Virginia. But um, uh, I can say that initially I wanted to I tell this story. I initially wanted to get a, a small grant from my from Loyola College uh, in order to uh, develop the syllabus for the course. These kinds of grants were available to some of the faculty. When I went in to visit the dean, who was a chemist, he could not comprehend why I would be teaching fairy tales in the theology department. And he said, maybe you ought to talk to the people in the education department. Hmm. Now, well, the education department had no interest in the kind of study of the fairy tales that I was doing. They like to build up bibliography. They're not very good at good literary criticism or religious insight into these stories. Um, but then I excused the dean because he was a chemist, and so <laughs> it was something of a flat planet, um, lacking imagination in great, yeah, he really lacked imagination. So I taught the course anyway. It was the most popular course I taught at Loyola. I only um, admitted 30 students. Um, at, no, actually there, I did it as a seminar. I wouldn't go beyond 18. Hmm. When I brought it to Virginia, I, I taught it, uh, I, I opened it up to 30 students. I tried to conduct as much as I could as a seminar, largely off to, off of the many papers I had them write, short papers. So I can say that last time I taught it, in the spring of the final year I taught, 2015, there were 30 in the class to be sure, but there were 150 or so on the wait list. So it was very popular. Um, I could have made it a major lecture course, but I didn't want to teach it, uh, those stories that way. I, I refused to do it. And so I left it at 30. And then a book came book came out of, out of that kind of teaching, the first book um, during my Loyola years. And then over the years since the publication, 1998, lots of people have asked me whether I would write another book like it. Even my editor at 
Oxford University Press, Cynthia Reed, early on suggested a second volume or maybe an expansion of the uh, Tending the Heart itself. I chose to expand the Tending the Heart because 25 years means a generation. So there are a lot of people who haven't looked at the book, uh, the first edition. And also, uh, I've said much of what I want to say about the moral imagination uh, in and and children's literature uh, in in that first edition. Um, I, 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 I thought a reiteration of it was more important than a second volume. So I decided to add three new chapters, um, um, one entitled The Triumph of uh, Good uh, Beauty. That's on um, that's on the Ugly Duckling and the Nightingale, both Anderson stories. And a second chapter on the goodness of goodness, which is on the Grimm's Cinderella and and um, John Ruskin's fantastic uh, Victorian fairy tale, The King of the Golden River. And uh, the third chapter on another one of McDonald's stories, The Wise Woman sometimes called The Lost Princess. Hmm. And it's a story, uh, I included the Ruskin story and The Wise Woman because I think it really ought to be up there in the canon and taught uh, as well as read to children. But um, they're not easy stories either. So I wanted to take people through the narrative and point out what was going on in those stories. And that'll be out... Uh, my editors at Oxford say in the end of January, we're going through the proofs now. Okay. We have the cover to cover design is beautiful, by the way. It's gorgeous. If I uh, remember correctly, it's available though for pre-order currently from Oxford Press. Is that right? Um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if there's something formally in, in state there at the conference. I had you know, flyers that enable them to do that. Okay. But I haven't looked to see. That's that's interesting. Well, um, I'll try it. I'll, tr I'll include the information from the flyer in the, in yeah, the show, show exactly. notes as well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Gorian, for, for joining us for the conference last week. Uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I encourage everybody to go out and, and get the new version when it's available in, in January. Uh, it's been in our home for quite a, quite a while, uh, the, the original version. And so we'll be purchase, purchasing the revision. Yeah, that, I, I just want to just want to say that it it, it it it's worthwhile because there are a hundred new pages in that. It's it's fifty percent larger. I hope it's not too weighty. I didn't want it to get too big, but I but I did, did include a preface. I edited through all of the chapters, um, mostly stylistic, some ha having to do with uh, chronology and so forth, because I originally wrote it for my children and now it's dedicated to my grandchildren and then i expanded the annotated bibliographical essay at the back the conclusion so it's a new book in many ways well i, I know you know as we talked about for for many of us it's hard to you mentioned it with the juniper tree but even with some of the ones we're more familiar familiar with to see the forest for the trees sometimes uh because of the culture we've we live in um, yeah. so all the help we can get in kind of in kind of seeing uh, what's happening in these in these fairy tales? I think is, is good for us, uh, particularly for those of us charged with educating uh, our own kids or children in, in a school. So we appreciate all the help we can get. 
Yeah, and I, I, one last thing I want to say about the fairy tales. The fairy tales this don't just belong to uh, young children. And the lesson there is in the fact that I've, for 25 years, taught them in a college classroom. And they're, they're obviously their minds are different uh, at that, they're mature. Um, and they gain things from those stories that you really can't teach to young children. Um, I, I think the fairy tales are, uh, when, when, when we're talking about the fairy tales and presenting the young children, much of it has to do with the, the narrative. Let the narrative stand, and then they'll talk about the story. Mm -hmm. um, they may not get into the abstractions that we as adults some, somehow found, find satisfying. When you teach it at, at the college level, you can do more of that. Um, because they have a background from which to interpret the stories in, in ways that, uh, or to understand them, and even the sources of the stories that are that are obviously uh, uh, un unknown to small children. Yeah, yeah. I think you you brought up John Senior in your talk. Um, you know, and he was part of that uh, that at Kansas that, that they, where they were trying to help form the moral imaginations of college students who hadn't hadn't received it, and I think. I yeah, the two books of senior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, the the uh, the death of the Christian culture and the restoration of Christian culture. Yeah, those are those are really valuable books. No, yeah. no question about it. So it's an important reminder for all of us that that moral formation and that and that poetic poetic uh, knowledge is is something we continue to access yeah. our whole life. So, thank you again. All right. Good. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning Doug Long Ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.